0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Did you know that one of the reasons we have the Bibles in our hands this morning is because of a person named William Tyndale? If you're not familiar with him, he is an English reformer from the 16th century. He was influenced by people like Martin Luther who was creating a German translation at the time. Tyndale was convinced that the way to connect with God was through his word, and the scripture should be made available to everyone. He would begin to work on an English translation using Greek and Hebrew sources. And this was illegal at the time and threatened the Anglican church and the Roman Catholic church and others because they felt they alone were to interpret scripture rather than leave it in the hands of lay people. Tyndale was then eventually forced to leave England and move to, move to Germany. Long story short, after some raids, some fleeing, some moving to other countries, with the help of the printing press, he made 6,000 copies of the New Testament. And then he would go on to smuggle copies of the Bible back into England, where eventually the authorities grew weary of him, and he burned, and they burned as many copies as they could find. He had become an enemy of the church and of the state. He was later then betrayed by a man who he confided in named Henry Phillips, who had befriended him only to turn him in. Tyndale was then imprisoned and eventually executed for heresy. And the reason I bring this up is because we're in a passage today that deals with persecution, and one of the people that came to mind was this man, William Tyndale, and what he went through correlates actually very closely with the scripture portion for today. And we're going to come back to this story in a little bit uh, but let's keep that in mind. And so to give us a larger context of where we're at, we're in the middle of a series called Signs and Wonders. Signs and Wonders. And all throughout the series, we've been seeing the compassion of Jesus who had been going out to crowds, constantly teaching, healing, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was, he was uh, healing lepers, paralytics, those with bleeding disorders, the blind, those unable to speak those inflicted with demons, all with the purpose to show that he is the Messiah that everyone was waiting for and to give them a foretaste of the kingdom that was breaking into this world. And then just last week, Tim took us through the first section of Matthew in verses 1 through 15, where Jesus gave the 12 disciples this same authority to cast out unclean spirits, to to heal every disease and affliction. And now the 12 don't just get to Don't just get to watch Jesus perform miracles, they get to carry it out themselves. See, Jesus was preparing to send them out, commanding them to go and proclaim to the lost sheep of Israel that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in doing so, he tells them in verse 8, to go and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons, just as Jesus was doing. It's amazing, right? Right? Now, if I was one of the 12 disciples, I would be so pumped up, right? A bunch of nobodies now get to go on mission with the Messiah, now with supernatural abilities to heal. I mean, I imagine it like, like a sports team, right? A bunch of, yeah, I imagine it like a sports team, and Jesus is gathering everybody around, everybody's hands are in and he's about to break it down. He tells everybody, this is it. This is what we're going to do. We're going to heal the sick. We're going to raise the dead. We're going to cleanse lepers and cast out demons. Everybody's hands are in, and Jesus is about to break it down. He's about to count us out. And church, I need your help with this. It's kingdom on three. One, two, three. Very good. Very good. I'm pretty sure that's how it went back then. I'm pretty sure. But if only that was it. Because Jesus wasn't done talking. It's not that simple. He goes on to tell them they're, they're going to be thrown into the deep end, and it's persecution that awaits. And that's where we're at in this passage in, in verse 16. Jesus explains to the 12 that he, they will indeed face persecution for following him. They now realize that this wonderful mission is also a dangerous one. At face value, it doesn't seem like the most cheery passage. But as we go through this, we're going to see that it's filled with hope as we look at the reality of our calling. And so before we move on, it's important to remember that we understand the context of this passage, that Jesus was helping his disciples anticipate the difficulty of the mission ahead. But note that he was speaking to their specific situation, so that doesn't mean we will experience everything that they experienced in the way that this passage is written, but it also doesn't mean that we won't go through anything that they mentioned either. So there are certainly elements of this passage that we need to draw from so that we too are prepared for the mission that we've signed up for. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And the title of today's sermon is Preparing... For persecution, preparing for persecution. So, Jesus warns the apostles that persecution will come, how it will look, and what they are to do. And in the same manner, we're gonna look at how this is to prepare us when facing persecution. He doesn't send us without a plan, right? And so, we're gonna to see today that Jesus prepares his followers for persecution with three warnings Jesus prepares his followers for persecution with three warnings. First warning is this. Jesus says, You are being sent into a hostile environment. You are being sent to a hostile environment. I'll read verse 16 with me. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, that's an interesting combination of animals, right? But he uses this to illustrate his warning. He very clearly tells us that we're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves, prey in the midst of predators. Now, that's not very encouraging at face value. Sheep doesn't really resemble strength at all. If you don't believe me, how would you feel if we changed our football team to the Chicago sheep? I don't think we'd be so thrilled about that. And I think we don't care if they come to the suburbs either, right? There's nothing ferocious or strong about being called sheep. And they're not the brightest animals around, but it's important that we understand that he wasn't calling us to be sheep in that sense, but it's to illustrate the bigger picture that we're going to be vulnerable and sent into a hostile environment. But like I mentioned, Jesus doesn't just give us the warning, but he also informs us on how to deal with it. Jesus tells them that because you will be in the midst of wolves, you are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I got a little distracted studying this portion. I wonder why Jesus would tell us to be a serpent. They don't have the best reputation. I think of you know, the fall in Genesis, or even Cobra Kai from the Karate Kid not a group that we want to be associated with, right? But as we examine this further, Jesus isn't telling them to be snakes in that sense. He's simply asking them to take on those specific traits like wisdom and shrewdness, to be astute, to be ready, not to be dangerous or venomous or wicked. Because in the same sentence, he balances it with the innocence of doves to be pure in motive, pure in heart, a symbol of peace, so blameless that the world's only accusation to you would be that Jesus is worth everything. And so what does that mean for us today? Well, I'd like to pause here for a moment and talk about what persecution might look like for us because we need to remember that the persecution that Christians face in America is very different than what it would look like for Christians in other parts of the world. There are countries where it would be illegal to practice your faith. So for our brothers and sisters, they're there looking at heavy persecution, some faced with imprisonment, physical suffering, or even martyred for their faith. And so I want us to respect the difficulty of that as well as acknowledge their boldness in moving the mission forward. They really are sheep in the midst of wolves. In a very real sense, right? They truly understand how, how valuable this gospel message is or they wouldn't be there. Take, for instance, Tom and Michelle, missionaries who are church partners with. They were here last April sharing their stories. They serve in Malaysia, where it's illegal for the Malay people to believe in Jesus. It's illegal for them to believe in Jesus. Can you believe that? It makes it really challenging to share the gospel, to plant churches, to build, build trust with each other. Tom had actually shared that morning when he spoke that one of the believers who they worked with was stopped at a normal traffic checkpoint uh, where they found nine Bibles in his car. The police were called and he he was immediately taken away and at that point they had not made contact with him. It's it's hard to fathom a life where simply believing in Jesus would mean risking your life. Because we here are fortunate enough to where being a follower of Christ is not illegal. We're obviously here this morning and every Sunday freely worshiping God. So while violence or death isn't out of the question, much of the persecution we may experience here is due to the intolerance we feel for our biblical worldview because Jesus is countercultural and he's a threat to what's the norm. So much of the, much of the affliction that we face here is because of increasing hostility and ridicule for our obedience to God in such an unbelieving place. And as we proclaim the message of the good news to the world, we are to be bold as sheep, to be wise and aware as serpents, and to be innocent and blameless like doves. And because we will be like sheep in the midst of wolves, Jesus gives us the next warning. The second warning is this. You will be confronted for your beliefs. You will be confronted for your beliefs. Let's read verse 17 and 18 together. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now the apostles are told that because of their devotion to Jesus men would be turning them over to the courts to be whipped in the synagogues that they would be dragged before governors and kings that these authorities would confront them on their loyalty to Jesus Jesus was that much of a threat that anyone that proclaimed his name would be challenged as well. And that's why Jesus tells them in verse 17 to beware of men. A reminder that they are not in a safe territory. Again, sheep in the midst of wolves. So don't get comfortable because this persecution is real. Not only that, God uses persecution as a means for us to bear witness to who Jesus is to a watching world. And before we continue from here, I think it's important that we quickly preface what Christian persecution is and what it's not. So what it is is opposition to Christians due to their commitment to Jesus. Simple enough, right? Opposition to Christians due to their commitment to Jesus it's conflict because what Jesus says is offensive. That even when displayed in truth and love, Jesus' message causes, causes anything from ridicule to retaliation for believing in Jesus. Whether that means a coworker shaming you for your convictions on a matter, or like we talked about, a country making it illegal to practice your faith, that would be persecution. What it's not is opposition due to your personal views or because you're being offensive. Just because you face opposition does not necessarily make it persecution. So we have to be careful not to conflate our own opinions with biblical claims and that we don't go arrogantly provoking responses to lead to opposition. That's not persecution. That's just being annoying, Okay. So simply because a certain political ideology isn't winning out, or even when Starbucks changed their cuffs from Christmas-themed to red cuffs, I'm not sure if you guys remember that, but that's not persecution, okay? So we have to check our motives and view issues from a biblical lens before we scream persecution. Because I don't want to sit down and play the opposition, but I don't want to overplay that hand either. But now getting back to it, what makes Jesus so offensive? It's because Jesus is the offense of the gospel. Christianity is simply incompatible with the world. In a culture that says your happiness is within you, Jesus says you are a sinner. The world says live your best life. Jesus says even your best will not get you far. Jesus says that the pursuit of any other philosophy will leave you empty. The salvation comes through him and him alone. The world says, listen to your heart. Jesus says, listen to me. The world says, speak your truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. For those of us that believe the gospel, it is the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 states, but for, those of the, but for those that don't believe this, it's foolishness and purely offensive. And so a quick word of advice again, the gospel is already offensive. It does not need our help. So if we receive opposition, let it be because of the offense of the cross, not because of our own arrogance, so we don't hinder our witness to an already hostile environment. Our lies preach the gospel and tell the world who we stand for, and our call is to always appro- approach With truth and love, even when the truth is hard to swallow. So, again, we're expected to be confronted for our beliefs because of the provocative nature of the gospel. And Jesus continues to provide instruction here as well. Read verses 19 and 20 with me. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say, because the Spirit will give you what you need and when you need it. Now, I, don't want this, I don't want this to come off just abstract and fluffy and empty. Because if you're like me, you might be wondering, does this really happen? Right? If we're put in a difficult situation... Do you think you're going to be hearing the audible voice of God? Maybe, but maybe not. But I want to be clear here. The verse is just telling us not to be anxious about what to say. It's not telling us to not be prepared. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15 says, But even even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we want to be prepared and not anxious. And preparation comes from abiding in the word on a regular basis. Being so immersed in the presence of Christ that what you say will be a natural overflow of a life led by Christ. If you're a believer, the spirit of God is in you. And so you'll be able to readily confess who Jesus is. It may not be perfect or eloquent, but he will prompt you with how to respond to opposition. The question then that we have to answer is this. Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you rooted in the truths of his word? And what do I mean by that? Jesus is alive, right? But do you actually spend time with him? Is your soul satisfied in his presence? Do you spend time in solitude and in prayer? The reason I ask this is because a lot of times Jesus becomes an afterthought or something we just do on Sundays. He gets lost in the chaos of life. And believe me, I get that. I think most of us here can say that Jesus is our everything, but then simultaneously give priority to other parts of our lives. That we're more drawn to the distractions of the world than meditating on the word. And if that's you this morning, let me just say that God hasn't turned away. He longs to be with you and you can, you can find refuge in him and you will find that he is more than enough. We actually went through a sermon series in spiritual disciplines at the beginning of the year. Just a little side note, but I found it very helpful. It's a good resource. It can be found on our website. But but Jesus says, don't worry about that. Just be with me. Trust me, and I will give you what you need. And when you need it, he says, I got you. And so that that was the second warning And so as we come to the third warning that Jesus gives, Jesus says, you will be hated for your allegiance to Jesus. You will be hated for your allegiance to Jesus. Let's read verses 21 and 22. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus tells the apostles that their own family is going to turn on them, even to the point of death. Now, like I said earlier, not all of this takes place in our lives in the same way. I don't think many of us have have family that's literally trying to physically hurt you because of your faith in Jesus. But I think what we need to realize is that even the people closest to us can be prone to resist and ridicule us for our faith. I don't think it's too far fetched to say that some of the decisions that we've made in following the Lord causes tension with people, even family members, some of them who might even be believers, because they just don't see eye to eye with you. Maybe some people think that this whole God stuff is just wacky. Maybe it's the church, maybe it's the church you've chosen to be a part of. Maybe it's the moral stances that you've taken or the political or social positions that you hold because of your convictions. Jesus says that you will be hated by all when you proclaim the name of Jesus. That doesn't mean every single person ever to exist, but without discrimination, all types of people, regardless of walk of life, will find offense with you because of Jesus. And that includes the people nearest to you. And so what does Jesus say despite all of this? To endure, to keep going the mission still stands. Last week, Tim taught us that God's invited us to take part in his mission to redeem this world by living in right, covenant relationship with him. To bear witness to all so that more would be drawn to him. We might be hated by our family. They might stand in our way. Those that that might mock us. But our mission remains to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God even when the world around us doesn't. And to that end, Jesus says, whoever endures till the end will be saved. So it's not so much about how you start, but how you finish that reveals the genuineness of your relationship with the Lord. Many of us have vivid testimonies of, of how God met us, and that's not to be taken lightly, but what good would that be, experience be if we allow the gospel to save us but not transform us? so that we could continuously walk humbly with God. So yes, starting is one thing, but it's how we continue and persevere till the end that proves our faith. That's why scripture constantly uses the analogy of running a race to describe the Christian faith. Quick story, I'm reminded of a time where a group of friends and I did the Warrior Dash. It was a while back, and if you don't know, the Warrior Dash is essentially a 5K, filled with a bunch of obstacles in between. But the race begins. We're off to a good start. And then after a couple of obstacles in, I say this in a nice way, I think we realize that we're all in different athletic capabilities. So we decide to take our time, help each other, finish this race. We were scaling walls, crawled through muddy trenches, and even jumped through fire. Yeah. It was just a couple inches high, but we we still did it. (laughs) It took us a while, but we finally see the finish line in our vision. But then literally seconds later, we see them starting to take down that finish line before we could get there. We were taking so long that they didn't know anyone else was still in the course. So they decided to close it up, and then they saw us. And then you hear someone go, Wait, wait, there's still a couple people left. And then they put it up and the wing crossed. And now I'm thinking, Was this a bad illustration for us today? <laughs> but let me just say that we tried and we finished. And I think that's the point here. So it's not so much about starting, getting off the starting block, but how do we endure and finish well? The same applies as we walk this life with Jesus and we come across opposition. We can either continue to press on to Christ as our strength and the glory of God as our goal so that we would be a light to the nations or we can veer off the path. And unfortunately, I think that happens to us a lot. Sometimes I do wonder what causes us to do that, to take our foot off the gas. To be honest, I think sometimes American Christianity is a little too comfortable. Don't get me wrong, I'm not not asking for suffering here, but it is an absolute privilege to live in this country where we don't have to fear the same way that other places might. But I think we take that for granted. We don't have to feel that desperation. We don't have a target on our backs in the same way. Instead, we live in a more consumeristic culture, distracted by frivolous things and easy to grow complacent. While in other countries, followers of Jesus desperately risk their lives grasping for the literal word of God, we here have the option to say, I'll get to my Bible later. I don't don't need to push my comforts any further than this. So I think that's what happens. The The fervency of our faith tends to kind of dissipate, and it hinders our testimony to others that that's not something that we can afford to do. Look at verse 23 with me. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now it's debated by scholars on what Jesus exactly means when he says before the Son of Man comes. But one thing we can certainly deduce is that there's a sense of urgency to live faithfully and endure persecution and continue the mission at hand. we see that the persecution is a means to spread the message of Jesus far and wide. And that's the thing. I really want us to be reminded of that urgency so that we don't just drag our feet but persevere with joy, living life daily with intentionality as we walk with God. So we don't, we don't risk our life for our faith here. But my hope and prayer is that we also don't grow stagnant, that we don't find comfort anywhere except for with God. That we would be so steadfast in our walk that we finish this race strong, that we don't waste our lives on things that don't really matter in the end, that we're bold in our faith and that we endure till the end, amen? And so I just have one question for us this morning. One question are you all in? Are you all in? Imagine you're one of the disciples who have been given the authority to heal and perform miracles, but Jesus then reminds you that you're also signing up for persecution. How do you respond? Honestly. Do you say, Jesus, I'm with you till the end? Or do you become hesitant and reluctant? Because there is technically a way to avoid persecution. Second Timothy 3:12 says, "All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." So if you want to avoid persecution, all you have to do is not live a godly life. Compromise your faith. Look so much like the world that you don't have a resemblance of Jesus. You wouldn't even be worth persecuting. I don't think that any of us want to be in this boat. But maybe we have certain tendencies that we need to be repenting of. And so maybe the reasonable thing to do is say, I'm in. I'm in, Jesus. But then does your life portray one that boldly faces the wolves, proudly proclaims the name of Jesus? Are you willing to not be accepted by those even closest to you? Are you willing to look foolish for following Jesus? Will you store the word in your heart and making Jesus your greatest priority? And then, are you prepared to do all of this till the end? I think that's what we have to answer. So, again, are you all in? It's a simple yet loaded question, but an important one for us to answer. And I know that doesn't sound easy, and it's not supposed to be, but let it provide comfort knowing that it's God that gives you the strength to faithfully face persecution for the sake of his name. Not only that, Jesus has never asked anything of us that he himself hasn't demonstrated first. Read verses uh, 24 and 25 with me as we close this passage. A disciple is not above his teacher nor servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebul is essentially another way of referring to, to Satan. Jesus is saying, if they slandered me and called me names like this, then you too will be slandered similarly, that they should not be expected to be treated any better than he was, that if Jesus was persecuted, you can expect the same. What well, the apostles come to find out, and what we already know, is that Christ would be persecuted eventually to the point of death. He would suffer on that cross. As he became our sin, our substitution, to purchase us with his blood, to do what we could never do, his persecution made a way for our rescue. And in his final breath, the last moment of his earthly suffering, Jesus would declare, it is finished. power of sin gone, the wrath of God satisfied, and victory over death, so that we would be restored and reunited with God. And in doing so, now we get to declare to the world, it is finished. Look what Jesus did. Look what he's doing. And if we truly believe the work of the gospel, we can't help align ourselves with this message. We can't help but suffer with him. Like we've been discussing, not everyone will be receptive to this news. And so we can expect the same opposition that Jesus faced. And so by his power, we willingly join him in suffering. Not as the downfall of being a Christian, but the privilege of being one in Christ. Church, we need to believe this today. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustains you till the end. And that brings us to our big idea for today. Jesus provides the plan, purpose, and the power to face persecution with courage. Jesus provides the plan, purpose, and power to face persecution with courage. So yes, persecution is part of the plan. It's not a mistake. It's ordained and a necessary part of the Christian life. Persecution, in fact, has never harmed the church. Never. It's only grown it. Unfortunate for us, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission that as we continue to proclaim his kingdom, he is with us till the end of the age. That's a promise. Because you might feel like sheep in the midst of wolves. You may face hostility. You might be mocked. You might be ridiculed for believing in Jesus in an increasingly secular world. You might be seen as foolish. But you are not alone. The same God that rescued you is the same God that gives you the ability to face persecution with courage and hope. And as we close, I want to go back to that story we started out with about William Tyndale. On October 6, 1536, Tyndale was taken out to the stake, strangled and burned alive. His last words were a prayer saying, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And then he died. Within a couple of years, we see that these prayers were answered and the king became receptive. Every church in England was required to have an English copy of the Bible for every parishioner. In the 70 years following, two million copies were sold in England, eventually leading the way for us to have our very own. The reason we can read our Bibles today, the reason we can study together today, the reason why there's a Bible in front of every chair this morning is because of people like William Tyndale, who's persevered till the end. He finished well, and he is just one of many. If you are sitting here today and know Jesus as Lord, know that it's because of the suffering and the persecution of our brothers and sisters before us who labored for the gospel that brought you this gospel. It may not seem like much when you're not doing something as dramatic. But if we faithfully live out the gospel daily, no matter how big or how small, and we face opposition boldly with rejoicing, the collective body of Christ will be used to move this mission forward. As we bear witness to the watching world about the love that God has for them. So let's continue to persevere by the strength of the Lord, so that the redeeming work of God will continue for generations or until He returns. Until then, let's be wise, let's be blameless, let's trust the Lord, and let's finish strong. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.